Greetings, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, September the 18th, and we sort of wrap up our sermon on looking at those marquee events in the life of Jesus and his ministry here on the earth. And this week, we we look at the future. We look at Jesus coming back. Today, we're going to look at John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, reading from the ESV Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. We should begin our consideration of John 14 by, first of all, remembering that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, all things visible and invisible. The scriptures tell, tell us that the earth was without form, it was void, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was, was hovering over the face of the waters. That's Genesis chapter 1. And I think we would all agree that this was no place for humanity to dwell. This empty, chaotic darkness was by no means suitable for humankind. There was no place for humanity in this dark and chaotic abyss. And so God began to bring the earth into shape. He began by power, the power of his word to form, to fashion the earth into a realm suitable for his creatures. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Genesis 1, 3 through 4. Then he divided the waters below from the waters above. The sky and the sea were created. And then he separated the seas from dry land. And the dry land produced vegetation. These realms that God created so that they might be filled were their proper rulers. And that is, in fact, what God proceeded to do. Now now that the earth was brought into shape, now that suitable realms had been created, he proceeded to fill those realms with the things that would govern them. And the scriptures tell us that on day four of creation, God created the sun and the moon and the stars. They were placed within their proper realm in order to rule the day and the night. Like in the like manner, God on day five created flying creatures and sea creatures, and they were placed within the realms created for them on day two. And they were to multiply and fill the sky and fill the sea. And then on day six, we're told that God filled the land, which was created on day three with the beasts of the earth, according to their kinds and the livestock, according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. The creation account of Genesis follows this pattern. Realms were created and then those realms were filled with creatures A place was made, light, the sky and the sea, dry land. And then those places were filled with God's creatures who were given the task of governing in one way or the other. And then God said, let's make humanity in our image after our likeness and and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created people in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves. 
And then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You, you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life. I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. That's Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 31. Much can be said about the creation account of Genesis 1, but what we want to see is that at the heart heart of it is this idea. God made a place for us, for humanity. He created all things visible and invisible by the power of his word. He then, by the power of his word, brought the earth out of its formless, empty, and dark state And he did so until there was a place where we could dwell. Genesis 2 tells us the same story, but from a different vantage point. It zooms in on humanity. Humanity, we are told, was created directly by God. We were created from the dust of the ground. God breathed into him the breath of life, and the woman was taken out of man. And after man was created by God, he put the man and the woman whom he had formed into the garden paradise that he had created. So there's a question that I think we have to answer before we move on. And the question is this, what made that garden paradise, paradise? Have we ever wondered that? I think we might be tempted to think that it was the climate or it was the lushness of the place. Perhaps it was the abundance of food, or maybe it was the absence of sickness and and death. These things certainly contributed to Adam and Eve's enjoyment of paradise. But we want to suggest that to us this morning that the thing that made paradise paradise had nothing to do with physical creation, but rather had everything to do with the fact that it was there that mankind, that humanity walked with God. Eden, the original creation, was like a temple where mankind enjoyed unbroken, unhindered, unmediated fellowship with the God who made them. Adam and Eve walked with God. He was their God and they were his people. Excuse me. God tabernacled with humanity there in that place. God is what made paradise paradise, you see. And if we're familiar with the scripture, we're aware of the fact that Genesis 1 and 2 are followed quickly by Genesis 3, which tell, tell us of humanity's original sin, and that's the fall. The consequence of the sin of our first parents was that paradise was lost. The wages of sin is death. Sickness and suffering became the norm. We were put out of the garden paradise, the way to the tree of life being blocked. But more than all of this, we should notice that our lost, that we lost our place before God. No longer will we walk with God in an unbroken, unhindered, unmediated way. No, we were now a sinner. We were children of wrath. We stood guilty before a holy God, condemned. But God, two of the most powerful words when put together in all of scripture, but God showed mercy to fallen humanity in an act of grace. He promised to redeem. He promised to defeat the evil one. He promised to send a savior. 
God promised to make a way for fallen humanity to dwell with him. The Bible, as complicated as it may seem, is really quite simple. It is the story of God making and keeping his promise to save a people to himself through Jesus, who is the Christ. So with that in mind, let's now move from our consideration of creation and fall forward through history, through the history of redemption. So we'll move past Abel and Seth and Enoch and Noah and past Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and moving past Moses and David. And now let's fix our attention on Jesus, who is the Christ, the promised one, who from long ago. So picture him there in the upper room with his disciples. He had, he had walked with them for over three years. He taught them many things. He performed miracles in front of them and in the sight of others. They believed that he was the Christ, the Savior of the world, and they expected him to remain forever. But now he's talking about going away. And in John 13, 33, we hear Jesus say, little children, for a little while, yet for a little while I'm with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. John 13, 33. The disciples were, were certainly troubled at this. They, they were greatly stressed. I mean, they were bothered at, one, at the thought of their master going away. After all, they expected him to remain forever. They thought to themselves, why does he need to leave? Where, where does he plan to go? Will we see him again? And how will we possibly get along in this world without him? These were the thoughts that were troubling the disciples of Jesus. And notice that Jesus brings comfort to his disciples. That is what John 14 is all about. Jesus is comforting his disciples concerning his departure, that departure which we talked about last week in the Ascension. And not only did he comfort the 11 who remained with him in the upper room on the night of his betrayal and arrest, but he, by way of extension, also comforts you and I who live in this age, this age between Jesus's first and his second coming. And so how does Jesus comfort those who are his, who will live in the time between his first and second coming? Well, Jesus commands us saying, hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. Look at verse one. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Isn't this like Jesus? We know that he himself was troubled in spirit, and yet even with the weight of the world on his shoulders, he gives himself to the task of comforting his disciples with the words, hey, guys, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. These words were originally for the 11 disciples who remained. That is true. But they're also for you and for me. Jesus says to all who are who are his, who live in this world between his first and his second coming, don't let your hearts be troubled. Friends, do we see that this is a command? Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. It's imperative in the Greek. And as a command, it is something that we are to obey. When our hearts are anxious, when our hearts are troubled with the cares that come with living in this world, we are to hear the command of Jesus saying, let not your hearts be troubled. And on hearing his words, we're to obey them. Jesus urges us saying, believe in God, believe also in me. Thankfully, there's substance to the command. There is, there's weight behind it. You, you know, we might say to one another, don't worry or, or be happy, right? Little, make little songs about it. But there's really little substance to that. We might 
respond to encouragement like that by saying, but why should I not worry? Or, or why should I be happy? You don't know me. You don't know my situation. But Jesus gives us a reason. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. But he does not leave us with just some empty command. He directs our attention to the God of the universe and urges us to take comfort in him. Believe in God. Believe also in me, he says. Perhaps there's no greater reason to refrain from fretting than to remember that the God who made us and, and that the love that he has for us in Jesus, and that is where Jesus directs our attention. Believe in God, believe in me. And so what, what are we to do when our hearts are filled with angst? Well, we're to listen to the command of Jesus. We are to run to, the, to God and place all of our trust in him. We are to follow the advice of Peter, who urges us to cast all all of our anxieties on God because he cares for us. It's 1 Peter 5, 7. You see, Jesus encourages us saying, I go and prepare a place for you. But Jesus goes further than this as he comforts his disciples, assuring them that, that his departure is for a good reason. It was not a purposeless departure, but a purposeful one. His departure, you see, was for their benefit as he would go away in order to prepare a place for those who, who belong to him. In my father's house are many rooms, many mansions, as Carl likes to say. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? So it was with Jesus' death, his burial, resurrection, and ascension to the Father. He would leave his disciples on earth for a time, but for good reason. He departed in order to prepare a place for those who belong to him. He has gone, friends, to prepare a place for us. Clearly, Jesus was talking about heaven. He refers to heaven as my father's house. Heaven is the place where God dwells. It is true there's a sense in which God is everywhere. He's omnipresent, of course. And because of the Holy Spirit, God lives within us. But heaven is that place where his glory dwells. In the scriptures, we are from time to time given a glimpse into heaven, where God is worshiped day and night by the heavenly host, by those who have passed from this world into glory. And Jesus here refers to this place as my father's house. I guess it could also be said that Jesus ultimately has in mind the new heavens and the new earth, that those who are in Christ, in Jesus, will enjoy for forever, for all of eternity. And this is ultimately what we should have in mind when we hear Jesus say, I go to prepare a place for you. Ultimately, the place that Jesus will prepare for us is the new heavens and the new earth. John describes this place for us at the end of the book of Revelation when he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the formal things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. It's the ultimate and final place that Jesus is preparing for those who are his. That is the church, us. 
Jesus tells us that in his father's house, there are many mansions, rooms, places. So are we to think of heaven as it is now or, or the, the new heavens, the new earth as a giant apartment complex then or, or a mansion with many individual rooms in which the people of God will dwell? Well, it seems to me that Jesus is using figurative language here. The point is that Jesus is going away to prepare a place for those who belong to him. And that in that place, there's ample room. There's plenty of room for his people. And there's a reason why we began this morning by, by rehashing the creation account. When we're thinking of the new heavens and the new earth, I think we ought to have in mind the original creation. In the end, the original creation will be restored. In the end, the people of God will possess that which the first Adam forfeited. We will possess what the first Adam forfeited by trusting in the second Adam, who is the Jesus the Christ, who accomplished salvation for us. Just as God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, making a place suitable for the first Adam to live, to dwell. So too, Jesus will usher in the new creation at the end of time, having prepared a place suitable for those united to him to dwell. The difference between the first creation and the new creation is that in the new creation, there will be no possibility for rebellion. We will enter into consummate rest, secure rest, everlasting rest. The first paradise could be lost. The second paradise cannot be lost because it is, is it has been paid or earned in full by Jesus, the Christ, the second Adam. And this is the difference between Eden and the eternal state. The similarity is this. In both the original creation and the new creation, the central and the significant feature is that God dwells in the middle of his people. The people of God will enjoy unbroken, unhindered, unmediated fellowship with the God who made them. This is what makes paradise paradise. When talking about heaven, people are accustomed to speaking of pearly gates, streets of gold, mansions on hills. We speak a lot about no more sin, no more sickness or death. And, and it's true that we long for these things, especially those of us who have struggled with sickness, those of us who have faced death over and over again, especially the death of loved ones. But we've missed the mark. We've terribly missed it. If, if when thinking of the new heavens and the new earth, we fail to see God with us, Emmanuel, as the most treasured feature of all. He is what makes heaven, heaven. He is what makes paradise, paradise. He is our life. It was true of the first creation, and it will be true of the last. We will walk with God in the cool of the evening. When the prophet spoke of the glories to come, this is... This is the very thing that they emphasized, God with us. Ezekiel 37, the promise was this, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And then in verse 26, 
I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. That's Ezekiel 37, 26 through 28. These things have already been fulfilled in part at, in part at Jesus' first coming, but they will be fulfilled fully at his second coming. And the book of Revelation paints the same picture for us, doesn't it? The voice of John heard said, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Revelation 21, 3. This is what makes paradise paradise. God with us. We will enjoy unbroken, unhindered, unmediated fellowship with the God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Do we see that this is precisely what Jesus emphasizes in John 14? He says, And I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. How comforting. How comforting. Are we not comforted by the fact that though we may struggle here on the earth in this time between Jesus' first and his second coming, but he has prepared a place for us. What, what you and I deserve is to be cast from the presence of God into the utter darkness, into that void, if you will. But just as God made a place suitable for Adam, for humanity, so to Christ has, had, has made a place suitable for you and me through his obedient life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And he has promised to return for us. He would depart for a time, but this separation will not be final. He will return for us his bride at the end of time, so that where he is, we may be also. Amen. And God bless.